Our scripture lesson today comes from the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Let's share in God's good word together. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. On Monday nights these days, Chantel and I head down to Epworth Villa. We eat at the bistro with my mom. And sometimes we check on my dad as well. And as we were there, you know, these days, as I watch my parents get older, I start asking them questions that I know I won't be able to ask here in a few years. We talk about things that we can talk about now that we may not be able to talk about in a little bit. So we get out yearbooks and we look through things. And so this was last week, and this is mom's yearbook. She was at the University of Alabama, roll tide, and uh, 1957, uh, got her undergrad and her master's there both. Uh, left, I think, in 61. And so as we were going through these um, photos, I've seen these my whole life as a little kid. Um, this was her freshman photo, top left here. Now, you can tell she's straight up from Dothan, right? 18 years old. And my great-grandmother was in Montgomery. My aunt's in Ozark. Uh, and Mama was at Tuscaloosa for those years. By the time we got to 1960, her senior year of undergrad... Ooh, isn't she something? She's just dressed up now, right, right? Fancy, fancy. And as I sort of zoomed out and I looked page after page, I noticed something this week that I had not noticed before. And that is everybody on that page looks exactly the same. I mean exactly the same. And of course, there's no shortage of stories about Bear Bryant, the bear. Even people today wear the hat. I mean, it's a big deal. And, you know, the, the Lord, he wasn't there her first year, but then, you know, other folks like Kenny Stabler, Joe Namath, they would come through and they would tell stories about putting him up on his shoulders and take, riding him off the field. And, uh, and so I was interested um, in football and the way it used to be. It's changed some. Linemen were about my size, actually, back in the day. And when I noticed page after page after page after page after page, not one person of color anywhere, not one, except right over here was an older gentleman who was the equipment manager, the only person of color I saw in any of her yearbooks. And I found that interesting because I was reading another book this week, Getting Ready, and that was roughly the same time that author and Lucy Foster enrolled as the first African-American at the University of Alabama, 1956. Of course, she only made it there about three days because of death threats, riots, protests, to which most of the students were told it was the media's fault for hounding her. And asking her stupid questions like, how does it feel to be the only person of color on campus? How do you think it, she felt? Isolated, alone, hurt. And so, about three days later, they expelled her. Couldn't keep her safe, they said. Now, before we get too hard on Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, 
I would remind you that it would be another 20 years before Edmond had a single black resident. We were sundown town until 1976, basically. Now, if you look at the, um, you know, the statistical record, in the 1950s, you'll see three people of color, uh, but they didn't own property. They were working for somebody, more than likely. And so we come to this issue that has been around since the time of Micah. God's people are to be just. Be just. That's what this whole weekend is about. And it is no coincidence that we chose to talk about justice on this weekend, of course. Because one of the things we're learning about justice is it takes planning. It takes intentionality. It doesn't just happen, does it? So when we look at the prophet Micah, and Pastor Brandon did a wonderful job last week of helping set us up, one of the things we learn about Micah is that he is one of 12 minor prophets. Minor not because they're less important, but because every one of those prophets fits on one scroll. So they're called minor prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, those folks are major prophets because they have their own scrolls, sometimes multiple scrolls. And so Micah is writing in roughly 725 B.C. And for those of you who don't work in B.C., it goes backwards. So like the bigger the number, the further away, right? Until you get to 80 and then it goes the other way. And so here's the thing. Micah is only 25 years old. And he's a country boy, right? And he looks at places like Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And he goes, whew, there's a lot of bad stuff, bad wrong going on in those cities. Kind of like the folks, you know, I graduated from Fairview out west. We're like, man, watch out for Tulsa and Oklahoma City. That's where the bad stuff happens. Right? I mean, it's, it's a big city. And so here's this little country boy. Now, what's interesting is he's out in the foothills southwest of Jerusalem. And at that time, the, the whole monarchy that had been unified under Saul and David and Solomon, it's now broken in two. And so you have this northern kingdom of Israel with Samaria as the capital and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, very small And uh, the capital of Jerusalem, which is only nine miles from the border, by the way. And so the prophet Micah is this younger contemporary of the major prophet Isaiah, who lived roughly 742 up until 687. And the reason this is important is because that northern kingdom is going to fall to Assyria in 722. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Micah is actually giving a warning about what happens to people when injustice goes unchecked. It looks like this. So Assyria is in the 700s. It's this big green area. In the 600s, it was actually by this big brown outline, which included all the way down to Egypt. And so you'll notice then that Assyria, right up here, this huge area was a major power. Down here was the other major power, Egypt. And right here, this tiny little dot, well, that's Judah and Israel. So Israel was this tiny yet strategic and valuable piece of land because it was really about the only way you could get goods from Asia to Africa. You had to go right through it. And Assyria had figured out that, man, that's a deal because if I can tax you on your way in and I can tax you on your way out, I'm making a lot of money for everything coming from Asia to Africa or the other way around. Now, it just so happened that, as happens in politics, Egypt started flexing its muscle Judah and Israel started having conversations with Egypt. And Egypt's like, man, we got you covered. Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay taxes to Assyria. That's dumb. Why would you do that? It's not even helping you at all. It all goes to them. And so, you know, Assyria's the dominant place, and they are taxing that entire region. And so Egypt's like, I got you. We're going to be there for you until they weren't. So Judah trusted Egypt rather than God, right? They're God's people supposed to lean on God to protect them from Assyria. Does Egypt ring a bell 
to anybody? Egypt had enslaved these people for more than 400 years. This is the same Egypt with Pharaoh, the same Egypt as Moses, the same Egypt as the Red Sea, the Passover. If anybody cannot be trusted in that situation, it's Egypt. But isn't it interesting we go back to the things we know? No matter how tough it might be. So the prophet Isaiah, he says, Oh, rebellious children, says the Lord, he's speaking for God, who carry out a plan, but not mine, God says, who make an alliance, but against my will, adding sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt of all places. Egypt, really? Without asking for my counsel to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Then God says, therefore, the protection of Pharaoh shall become your shame. Like, come on, people. You know better than this. The shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. So this first major section, chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's not a big book. It's a minor book, as you know. It's a warning. It's a warning to the powers that be, to to the leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders in Samaria in the north and Jerusalem in the south. So Micah writes this warning. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria itself? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem, the capital city? So Micah is warning, right? He's warning, but he's trying to help them. He's saying, look, Samaria is going to be destroyed. And it was. It was leveled because of corruption. And even to this day, it's not rebuilt in the north. It was rebuilt in the south, but not in the north. There's almost nothing there. When you go on the Holy Land trip, you're wondering, like, why are we here? Because there's not much left. Just a few stones here and there put together from that time. But it's all because of corruption, friends, by their political and religious leaders. So again, Micah, at the close of this warning, he says, And I said, listen, listen, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones. And he goes on. Now, When we talk about prophets, it's important to remember that we're not talking about fortune tellers. We're talking about wisdom. Adam Hamilton puts it like this. He says, prophets didn't always foretell the future. What they saw was the handwriting on the wall. Kind of like grandma. Like, ooh, that's not going to work. Right? They know. They can see it coming. And they could see what was about to happen in the world around them. And then they would express how, here's how God relates to this. That's the problem, and this is what God, how he feels about it, what God's doing. So there is this 50 years of prosperity and peace in the northern kingdom of Israel until 722. So warning, 725, 24, 23, and then 22 it hits when the Assyrians conquer them and destroy their capital, Samaria. Now, if it, gets, it actually gets worse than that. It's not just that they conquer them. It's not just that they tear things apart. They actually take... Everyone with any sort of means, any sort of education, any sort of money or talent, and they take them, the red line here, all the way back to Nineveh, which would be today, Mosul, modern-day Iraq, um, all the way out to here. Now, in the the purple, that was a little earlier, and then the yellow um, a little later. But not only are they raising, you know, just leveling out the people, then they're taking any hope of leadership because they don't want a revolution. So Micah, as he looks at all this, he has three messages for God's people then and now. And the first is that we will all be judged for our evil. There are consequences to our actions, and there's no getting out of them. Now, does God still love you? Yes. 
Will he forgive you? Yes. Will he restore you? Yes. Will he restore Jerusalem? Yes. But that doesn't get you out of the punishment, out of the consequences for your actions. You can only hold people down so long. It's important that we remember that because we serve the same God as Micah, don't we? That's where you say, Amen. Yes, we do. This is the same God that cares about justice, about making things right. Now, back to my mom. When she's about 17 uh, in Montgomery, there were some things going on. Rosa Parks in 1955 sat on a bus. Not her first time, not her first protest. And she was arrested because when a white man asked her to get up, she didn't. She was tired. Tired of getting up, tired of the nonsense, tired of being trampled on. And after years and years and years of mistreatment on public buses, they organized a boycott. Now, Rosa wasn't the only one. There were 89. 89 people were arrested for violating the city's anti-boycott statute. 89 of them. And here's the thing. If you're Montgomery, you can't try 89 cases at once. So you just decide, I'm going to try one. A 27-year-old black minister from Atlanta named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's who they chose. 27. 27. When I was in school growing up thinking about Dr. King, he's this ginormous figure. Now I'm a dad of a 23-year-old and a 26-year-old. I'm like... Dang, that's young. I mean, he's, he's young. And by the way, all great movements start with kids in their 20s. They got nothing to lose yet. So they, so they think, I mean, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's something to that. And the only person younger in the courtroom was his attorney, Fred Gray, 24 years old. Now, all of this goes down because generally the front seats were reserved for white folk. The black sat in the back. As a matter of fact, I didn't know this um, until this week. They would come and pay their fare. They'd have to turn around, get back off the bus, walk outside to the back of the bus, and then back up into the back seats. It was done purposely that way for humiliation. And the drivers would determine who sat where, whenever they wanted to, however they wanted to. Each driver basically had their own kingdom. And they could be gracious to you, or they could put you in jail. Subject to arrest. So, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks just didn't get up. Now, what I didn't realize until this week is that the black community needed the buses much more than the white community. Somewhere between a half and three-fourths of all bus riders in Montgomery at the time were black. That's how they got to work. That's how they visited family. Everything was based on the bus system. The blacks had much more to lose than the whites in this fight. And yet they figured it out. They knew that they could not do this any longer. If you'd like to know more about this, I recommend this book to you, Alabama versus King. It basically argues that the civil rights movement starts at this moment because they chose a 27-year-old minister to prosecute. And we're talking about this today because we serve a God of justice. Do justice. And like Micah, we believe words and songs, do they matter? Sure. But they matter less than working for justice every day. We come and we sing that we've got God's breath in our lungs. And then when we go out there, the question is, do we still have his breath? Do we still speak? Or do we come back? Because we've got a lot to lose. 
The psalmist writes it like this. Give justice to the weak. That's who needs justice. And the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. How many of the nations belong to God? Including us. Now, right, all of them. Old Testament professor Daniel Simonson uh, talks about Micah this way. He says, the people's questions, not unlike ours, were preoccupied with what they could do to please God. Me and God, me and God. Am I good with God? Am I okay with God? That's the question. Through religious ritual and ceremony. Did I go to church? Did I take communion? That's, that's the way people thought about it. But read this with me. God is more interested in the way people live their lives than in their religious practices. The prophet Amos even says that God hates such superficial efforts of piety if they are not accompanied, read it with me, by lives dedicated to justice and righteousness. That's our call. The things we do in here are so we can make a difference out there. The kingdom would come. That heaven would come to earth. Now, justice is not a suggestion. Is it? This is God's character. We are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. It's not a suggestion, but rather a requirement of God's people. And Micah doesn't say, and God says to the people, if you think about it, if you have time, it's not cost too much for all work. He says, what do I require of you? Do justice. It's not something you think about. It's something you do. He has told you. Read it with me. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. By the way, next week, week after. Right? How do we walk into the prophetic words of God? Now, justice can be a hard thing to get on top of. And justice, friends, is simply about closing the gap between the world as it is and the world as God has always meant it to be. Creating shalom. Making the broken places whole. Making things right. About closing the gap. That's what we're to be about. That's what Jesus did. Everywhere Jesus went, that's what he did. The lame walked. The lepers were healed. Women were recognized. Anywhere there was injustice, Jesus stepped in and made things right. So put simply, justice is valuing all people. All people. Any of you all um, watching The Chosen these days? I find that fascinating. Um, And one of the things I found fascinating is they they did a number of episodes uh, when Jesus is in Samaria. And the great hatred that Samaritans and Jewish people had for one another. And everybody was always on top of Jesus to say, what are you doing? You're not supposed to talk to them. And what Jesus says back to them is, I require a lot of those who follow me. I require little of those who don't. And I think that's exactly right. God requires of us to be the ones to bring justice. Because we know him. We live in his power. In the book of the law, not suggestion, Deuteronomy says, For the Lord your God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes, say with me, justice, this is our God, for the orphan and the widow and who loves the strangers, by the way, that is exact translation to immigrants. There's no way to get around that, friends. There's just not. Providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, the immigrant, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Yes, you used to be slaves. You used to not have standing in the culture. That's who God cares about because no one else does. 
So God cares deeply about the defense of the legally helpless, the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the immigrant. It is, by the way, true, if you want to look up the statistics, that we don't execute, by the way, the worst of the worst. We execute the poorest of the poor. People who don't have a lawyer good enough to keep them alive. I I recommend that you would actually bear that out. So the stranger in the Bible, these people with no standing, they, they are part of the community, but they're in danger of exploitation. This still happens today all the time. We don't talk about it, but it happens all the time. Now, I saw this firsthand a number of years ago right here in Edmond. Now, what happens is someone uh, who is of a different background, they're either a day laborer or they get an hourly job, and sometimes they get paid what they're supposed to. And sometimes they don't. And when they don't, what are they going to do? Go to the authorities so they can get deported or harassed? Justice. Just simply doing the right thing. And Amos, the prophet, says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God desires. Now, the Hebrew word for justice is not something that just, you know, it's not just not over here. It's not just one holiday once a year. In the Old Testament, it appears more than 400 times. 400 times in the Old Testament. It was very important to God. And he reminds them, this used to be you, friends. And this biblical idea of justice, it includes things like compassion and defending the rights of the oppressed and working to bring about shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Working, not thinking about, not hoping for, but working, rolling up your sleeves and getting involved and making a difference. Because justice doesn't just happen. Say that with me. Justice doesn't just happen. It doesn't. You got to work at it. You got to stand up for people. You have to get involved. Right? And so if you know a public educator, a teacher, an administrator, you can work right now. There's plenty of kids that need somebody to help them read, learn, be there, care for them. There's plenty that we can do. And it's life-changing for you and for the people. Adam Hamilton writes it like this. He says, we are meant to stand with and for. Right? God's people are to stand with and for the people who are bullied and picked on. And we are meant to work for seeing justice to make things right. That's what Dr. King did from 1929 until he was assassinated in 1968. Assassinated for trying to do the right thing. And he writes these words, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. And he goes on to say, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. The United States. Dr. King was born January 15th, 1929. And King's birthday was approved as a federal holiday um, written into law by Ronald Reagan. 1983. I found it fascinating and heart-wrenching that it would take another 17 years until the year 2000 with a great deal of pressure from the NFL before all 50 states would come on board, even though it was a federal holiday 17 years earlier. So today, King's holiday is set apart on the third Monday in January. This year just happens to fall today, his birthday, January 15th. Today's his birthday. 
We celebrate him and what God has done through him and continues to do through him. Dr. Kevin Murrell, who wrote the book that we're going to be studying uh, this semester, writes, Racism and prejudice are still the two diseases that overwhelmingly hurt our world and hold us back from progress. A lot of work to do, friends. So MLK Day is the only federal holiday designated to get to work. For what? Say it with me. Service. Service. That's what tomorrow is about. And I just wonder, I don't, I'm not going to take a poll, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I just wonder how many of you actually have plans to serve your community tomorrow. Looks like a good day for golf. Right? I mean, think, think about what this is. We're to improve our communities, not simply be beneficiaries of it. That's our calling. And the success of the civil rights movement proved that planning is critical. It doesn't just happen. It's so important. Um, Back uh, a number of months ago, um, Church of the Resurrection, our largest United Methodist church uh, in the country, uh, ran this B campaign as a part uh, going into the elections. And one of the people they talked with is uh, Rabbi Arthur Nemetov. Uh, He serves as the rabbi there in Kansas City. He grew up there, uh, the senior pastor uh, of Church of the Resurrection, Adam Hamilton, their friends. And so in their knowing of each other, um, Rabbi Nemetov told a story. And he said, you know, it wasn't the easiest growing up as a Jewish kid in Kansas City in middle America, but it also wasn't terrible. I mean, it's a nice community there. He says, but when he was a sophomore in high school, his dad died. And in the Jewish community, what you do when a loved one passes, particularly close in your family, you take a piece of fabric and you pin it over your heart as a sign of your mourning. To let people know what's going on with you. So he went to school with a piece of fabric pinned over his heart. And as he was trying to get to class, there were three students that came up and began to bully him, pick on him. Like, hey, what's that? What are you doing? And that's so weird. I don't know all the language that they use. It wouldn't be appropriate to say it here. But they're like, what is all that fabric? And he told them, he said, my dad died. I'm in mourning. This is what our community does to show our mourning. It didn't stop them. It just brought more. And they picked on him and they bullied him. At the loss of his father as a kid who's 15. And then there was one very large, strong other boy that walked between Art and the other three boys. And he said, if you're going to bully him, you're going to have to go through me. You know what happened, right? Folks don't bully people that have their number. And Rabbi Nimitov said he never forgot that. The power of someone standing up for you. So Adam says, after he heard that story, every year at confirmation, when you know the kids are about 12 and they're giving their life to Christ, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? He asks them. He says, in this story... Don't you figure that the boy standing up for him was a Christian? And all the kids go, yeah, yeah. That's how we learned to do that. And then he says, and don't you figure the other three were too? Christians? And then he asked them, what kind of Christian will you be? That's our question. You see, friends, we work for a cause greater than ourselves so that all people can live together in authentic community, not just some. 
All of us. And we are to speak out for those who cannot speak for themselves. Right? Who cannot speak for the destitute. This is the wisdom of God, friends, out of Proverbs. Speak out. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. It's still, still around today. I found it interesting. If you'll kind of follow the news, what you'll see is that almost every story is about injustice. I really celebrated back in 21 that Homeland had the audacity and the courage to go into our worst food desert in Oklahoma City. Right? It's Northeast 36th Street. And it's a beautiful store. And, and really making a wonderful difference until this year when the people around the store can't afford to shop there. Because the bread at that store is a dollar more than the bread at Walmart or Winco four miles away. They just can't get there. Eggs are up 148%. One of the women that shopped there, if you read the article in the Oklahoman, says, you know, cornbread used to be two for a dollar, and now it's 78 cents a piece. And let's be honest, there's not a person in this room that's a big deal to. But it is to her. It is to her. Because she's on a fixed income. She doesn't have any choices. She can't drive to the other stores in town. Now, I'm not beating on Homeland at all. Not at all. They had the courage to go in when no one else would. What I am saying is there are systems in place that make it more expensive to be there. Haven't you ever wondered why we can get gas at 256 at Kelly and Danforth and folks down in the poor areas pay more than three bucks? Have you ever crossed your mind? That's a real thing, friends. There are systems in place where the wealthiest among us pay the least for our products and the poorest among us pay the most for the same products. And it's not just economic injustice. Sometimes it's injustice of justice. Like Mary Cox up in Bartlesville. Uh, she's a white lady. Um, had two kids. Still has two kids. Single mom. Driving her way to work. Gets pulled over. With a suspended license because she owes a $138 fine. She couldn't afford the $350 of extra um, penalties that she had to get her license. And so she didn't even think anything about it. She's going to her work to pay the fine, to care for her kids as a single mom, and they take her to jail. And the judge, who wasn't supposed to be on the bench that week, throws her in jail for eight months for 138 bucks. When she gets out of jail, because it's $38 a day, she owes more than $10,000 in fines. That's not supposed to happen here. And the kingdom of God with $138 rightly placed at the right time, changes that woman's life. By the way, she got evicted, right? No place for her kids now because she couldn't pay because she was in jail. It's not supposed to be like that. Now, again, Kevin Muir would say it like this. Ignoring racial division will not bring about racial reconciliation. It doesn't. It doesn't. Will you say that with me? Ignoring racial division will not bring about racial reconciliation. It does not. Now, are things getting better? Yes, I hope so. In some ways, they are. And so you go 30 years forward from my mama to me. I'm at Oklahoma State. Moment for that wonderful institution. And in 1988, I was a sophomore. And I'm still wondering, how is it that John Mark Foster from California and Mark Foster from Fairview, Oklahoma, shop at the exact same store, wear the exact same shirt for picture day? How? How is that possible? Ridiculous. But if you zoom out a little bit, you'll see that things are beginning to change a little, a little. And we got our football too. We got Barry Sanders. You know, we got our things that we can celebrate. Football team looked a lot different in 88. 
But do you know why I was looking at 88 in the first place? Because that's the year that Arthur and Lucy Foster had the expulsion rescinded. She went back to the University of Alabama. She got her master's. Roll Tide. It's a slow roll. But it's rolling. The Supreme Court had to rule in her favor to integrate in February 3rd, 1956. But by 1988, things were changing. So here's the question I have for all of us. And that is, we, we do this each week at communion. What will you do at Christ's eternal banquet? Because Lucy Foster's going to be there across the table. Dr. King's going to be there across the table. Right? Friends, family, people we have wronged, they're going to be there. And we cannot dodge glances forever, friends. I mean, I want to enjoy the meal, don't you? I mean, I want to enjoy it in its fullness with joy, family. And friends, Jesus knows about injustice. The ultimate act of injustice is his death on the cross. Live perfect life, a perfect life. Spat on, ratted out, false trial, whipped, beaten, crucified. Friends, justice is important to Jesus. We want to be on the right side of that. Because he's on the right side of that. Now, Father Richard War put it beautifully this week. He says, it is not an enviable position, this Christian thing. No. Following Jesus is a vocation to share the fate of God for the life of the world. To allow what God, for some reason, allows and uses. And uses. And to suffer ever so slightly what God suffers eternally. Friends, this justice is our business. It always has been, even if we don't know so. Ever since we were little, if you grew up here, we would start every morning at public school, if you went to public school like I did. And you said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, right, one, under God, indivisible. You can't divide it. And say the last line with me. You know it. With Liberty and justice for all. For all, not some. This is our work. It's not Republican, Democrat. It's not even American, really. It's human. It's children of God. This is the vision. So, action steps for this week. I read a letter from a Birmingham jail when I was a sophomore um, in college. It's very powerful. I recommend it to you. You could do that this afternoon or tomorrow. You can show up for your community and serve those experiencing economic or racial injustice. You can do that in your public school. You can do that at the Hope Center. You can do that at Regional Food Bank. You can make a difference today. Or, if you want, you can join Chantel and I tomorrow. We'll be at Quail United Methodist Church, our historic black United Methodist Church. Uh, they brought in the national speaker um, around uh, the black church in the 21st century. Uh, and the vision of Dr. King of the beloved community, what it is if we really loved each other and worked together for God's kingdom here on earth, all people. Or you might join our upcoming class with Bobby and Dr. Timmerman. Dr. Timmerman is a, a professor um, of black history at the University of Langston. And we'll be looking at this um, for a number of weeks this, this semester. Recommend that to you. Lots and lots of things we can do other than just sleep in. Because it's a holiday. So I invite you to 
seriously consider and pray this prayer with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. We pray for courage, determination, and justice for those who are oppressed. We pray that this congregation never be silent in the face of wrong. Give us courage. Inspire each of us to work more faithfully for justice and dignity of life everywhere. Awake in us the desire to seek your way of serving you in the world. Help us to be just. Amen. Now, with the confidence of children of God, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.